This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Well, welcome this gorgeous October evening at the peak of our fall colors. Um, I am Sarah Chestnut, and I'll be lecturing tonight on this topic, To Be Bread Broken, Loafing Around with Jesus. But before we dive into that, I just want to um, flag for you that next week, Ben Kynes will be lecturing on the playfully skeptical music of Josh Ritter. So you might want to make your way back next Friday to hear Ben. Um, And then after Ben, the end of October, my sweet husband, Joshua Chestnut, will be lecturing on what do we do with our tears, a theology of crying. And if you're a a guest here with us and you would consider yourself a crier, he'd love to talk to you between now and then. Doing some interviews. Okay. To be bread broken. Loafing around with Jesus? Well, we often um, note the fact that here at Labrie we give titles and descriptions for our lectures long before we've written them. And sometimes the lecture that we end up with bears little resemblance to the title that's offered. But tonight... I'm actually hoping to just crack open this title, to unpack it, to be bread broken, loafing around with Jesus, or um, to change the metaphor to suit the theme better, I want to pick up this title, like one might a loaf of bread, break it, which I'm tempted to do, but I'm not going to, (laughs) and give it to you all to chew on, hopefully swallow, and I hope that our time of discussion can begin the digestion process for us. Now, before I attend to the shameless pun in the title of my lecture, I want to begin where all endeavors in the kitchen should start. And really, we would do well to transfer this into endeavors anywhere, in any context. And it's with the French culinary phrase, mise en place. Mise en place means putting in place. And it refers to the setup that is required before cooking or baking. The phrase is used as a noun, the setup of tools and the ingredients. It's used as a verb, the process of preparing. And it's used to express a state of mind, preparedness. 
You have taken stock. You have gotten your bearings in the working space. You know, um, sorry, you have gotten your bearings in the working space and in your own body, and you know what you have at hand to work with. And you know what is missing and needs to be borrowed from your neighbor or what substitutions must be made if you're going to continue. In this book, Out of the House of Bread, Preston Yancey writes, Mise en place is a checking in, giving the kitchen and your abilities a once-over to confirm you are able to complete the recipe. Do you understand all the terms that were used in the recipe, which you were meant to have read two to three times in advance? Do you have the eight pans Julia Child believes you should in order to make the gigot d'agneau pleureur, which is this, a weeping leg of lamb, Or, for that matter, do you have the patience to do it? Mise en place. So, if I'm going to bake a lecture for you tonight, allow me to mise en place, to lay out the ingredients and the tools needed for this particular recipe. I'd like to invite you to think of this list of ingredients, as it were, as the outline for the lecture. So there are thoughts on imagination, which I want to pull through from Esther's lecture last week. Um, if you weren't here last week, don't worry. I think you'll, you'll track just fine. But there's um, some ideas that she was unpacking for us that I really want to try to employ tonight. And for that, uh, I think we need a hospitable attitude toward metaphor, which takes a lot of imagination. Metaphor, uh, from the beginning, takes imagination. Then there's this word, loafing. There's a poem called Baker, The Baker. Um, and it's really that poem that gave rise to my desire, I, know, I told you, I had more puns uh, that gave rise to my desire to write this lecture. And it ends with the phrase that I borrowed for the title, to be bread broken. And there are these, uh, and then there's the a quick look at the biblical motif of the meal. And then the specific words of Jesus. I am the bread of life. And this bread is my body. If mise en place involves a taking stock of not only what is available to you, but what you bring to what's available, I would add to this list 15 years of making bread, experience making bread. Um, And I think that anything we do repeatedly shapes us. And I bring with me um, a couple presuppositions. The first, that making bread can be a devotional practice. And by practice, I mean a way or a routine or a regular activity. 
<clears throat> undertaken to both give love to God and to receive God's love and grace. A practice, a spiritual practice, is about getting God's grace into us. Um, and also this second presupposition, that the aim and the end of any devotional practice that is Christian is meant to make a person more like Jesus. Rather than, for example, uh, the aim and end of personal peace or a general sense of well-being, though these might be pleasant side effects. Last week, Esther pointed to humility and service as the shape of the image of God. And while I don't think uh, this is an exhaustive list of ways that we grow in becoming more like Jesus, I do think these are essential expressions of growth in Christ-likeness. So I would like to invite you to think for a moment what you bring tonight. What do you bring that you would add to this list of what I'm making available? Perhaps you have a different set of presuppositions than the one I have. Or perhaps you have a bit of trepidation or maybe exultation at the thought of a deep dive into metaphor. Perhaps you have end of the day or end of the week weariness. I'll give you a moment and I will count. But a minute of quiet for you to mise en place. Take stock. Well, whatever else you would add to the list of ingredients in this metaphorical kitchen tonight, uh, you are welcome here, friends. And now the mixing begins. So I want to begin with some thoughts on imagination. Last week, Esther spoke to us and with us about imagination, the organ of perception and meaning-making. And often we think of an organ like my heart or my liver. Here, we're speaking of something, an, an inner eye, perhaps we could say, an organ of perception and meaning-making that gives body to thought. Tonight we're going to be spending a good deal of time considering a metaphor, the metaphor that Jesus used to speak of his body on the night that he was betrayed. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take Eat, this is my body. This bread is my body. Jesus looked at bread 
and he saw himself. What an imagination this required. Jesus looked at bread and saw a form for how he understood his own body. He thought of himself as bread. Bread is the form Jesus chose when he wished to express what he thought of himself. Jesus chose bread when he wished to communicate something of his identity to his friends in his final meal with them. He also thought of himself as the cup of wine, saw his lifeblood in the drink that they shared. But that's for another lecture. And in his gospel, John tells us that Jesus was the form the triune God chose when he wished to communicate his identity to the world. In the beginning, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God thought God and took the form of Jesus. Jesus thought Jesus, who is God, and took the form bread. Do you see here the way a metaphor runs in two directions? When Jesus said, this bread is my body, he was transferring qualities of bread to his body He was asking us to think of his body in ways that we think about bread. Explicitly in this Last Supper, bread that is taken, chosen, and picked up by Jesus, blessed, broken, and given. But the power of metaphor is that we can't help but also think of bread in a different way. How is bread like Jesus. The Christian church has celebrated the Lord's Supper, also called Holy Communion or Eucharist, for over 2,000 years as a defining act of obedience to Christ. He told his followers to do this, eat this meal in remembrance of me. But there's more than mere duty in this obedient act. There is potency for shaping Christian identity. We take Christ's body, bread, so as to become Christ's body, bread. And while it's outside the scope of this lecture um, to delve deeply into a theology of the sacraments of the church. I don't want to neglect to highlight how central bread is both to Jesus' self-understanding and to the life and self-understanding of the church. So, imaginations. Oops, I'm sorry, forgot that. Imaginations ignited. Loafing. To address this word, loafing. I admit the pun was irresistible, but not merely for the pun's sake. Loafing, of course, is not a compliment. To be a loafer is not a state of being one should aspire to. 
the idiom to loaf around connotes idleness, laziness, doing a whole lot of nothing. Yet, Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, perhaps companion charges to loafing. And he was incredibly unhurried. In John's Gospel, Jesus repeatedly uses the phrase, my time has not yet come, expressing, I want to be clear about this, not a disregard for time, but a regard for timeliness. But it looked to others like a lack of ambition. Maybe it looked like loafing about. I think also of Jesus' deliberate delay in responding to Mary and Martha's alert that their brother and Jesus' dear friend Lazarus was on his deathbed. Of all times, Jesus, now is the time to hustle. But he doesn't. When you are making bread, you do a lot of waiting. Which means... You do a lot of other things around the edges, like washing dishes or folding laundry or having a tutorial with a Libri student. While, all the while, the crucial thing for a good result, which to the naked eye is an invisible thing, except for its slow effect, is happening. Fermentation. The slow rise of dough. Yeast and good bacteria feasting on the sugars in the grain, letting off gas as a byproduct which breathes life into the otherwise dense, heavy mass of wet, lightly salted flour. Mmm, <laughs> yummy. Doesn't that sound tasty? <laughs> In the same passage in Matthew 11 where Jesus confronts the crowds about writing him off as a glutton and a drunkard, we find Jesus' compassionate invitation to come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Loafing may well be an avoidance of necessary hard work and a failure to rise to the demands of life and love. But I would like to argue that loafing with Jesus, becoming more bread-like, like Jesus, is truly the path to rest for our souls, as Jesus promises. Indeed, this invitation to partner with Jesus, to be yoked with him, is not an invitation to not work. Rather, it is an invitation to work and rest in renewed ways, in deeply trusting ways. Things are happening even when you don't see them happening. We will revisit loafing before the end of the lecture. I'd like to 
move on to this poem, Baker, by Jeannie Murray Walker, who is a poet of Christian faith. And at the end of August, I took a two-night retreat by myself to rest, to read, to write, to, I guess we could say, mise en place, to take stock. Or in the words of David in Psalm 4, to ponder in my heart on my own bed and be silent. And during that time, I read this poem, and I felt that it articulated for me something that I wanted but didn't know that I wanted. The potency of metaphor did its work on me. So I'd like to read it for you and then offer some observations and highlight a couple of questions that I believe this poem asks of us. The bus releases you beside the bakery at 5 a.m. His light's on. You can smell the secret life of bread its russet, brawny shoulders rising in the pan, yeast swelling, yearning toward croissants, pretzels, braided curls of challah. You give the baker money. (coughs) He gives you a loaf. Neither of you can say the mystery you share like lovers. You shyly nod and bear your loneliness to work in helpless hands. Whatever it is, you cannot explain the one thing that matters. You break his bread at noon and fling it toward frozen ducks on the mill pond, and you awaken from what you've been. You want to be bread broken. You can smell the secret life of bread. This alludes to the transformation that simple ingredients go through as dough becomes croissant or pretzel or challah or a loaf of Vermont sourdough or if you got some from the front hall, a loaf of Lisa's breakfast quinoa sourdough. Note the bodily language that's used for bread. Brawny shoulders, yearning. These are human qualities. And in this particular list, croissant, pretzels, braided curls of challah, and prompted by the personifying word yearning, we hear an implicit question. The question the baker would ask but is not recorded in the poem. What can I get you? Or put more bluntly, what do you want? Do I want a croissant, a pretzel, 
Note the space and gap in the form there. Space for that implied question to hang in the air, to draw us into the moment of decision. A loaf. You give the baker money, he gives you a loaf. So you wanted a loaf. And the next five lines, to me, are full of ambiguity. Neither of you can say the mystery you share like lovers. You shyly nod and bear your loneliness to work in helpless hands. Whatever it is, you cannot explain the one thing that matters. Perhaps a loaf is the form, the physical, tangible shape of a thought, not yet funk, not yet identified or articulated. Maybe in this case, it's the baker's thought, I will make such and such a loaf, taking this particular form, that said loaf, that leads the you of this poem to a new insight that is slow in coming and must go through some feelings of frustration and exasperation, helplessness. You shyly nod and bear your loneliness to work in helpless hands. Whatever it is, you cannot explain the one thing that matters. The loaf now seems to symbolize loneliness. For literally, it is the loaf that the you bears, carries to work. What then is the one thing that matters? And note that break, that space in the poem which alludes to the passage of time. The poem moves from 5 a.m. to noon, perhaps a lunch break. And in a surprising act of generosity, that one thing that matters that cannot be said in words, finds a form for expression. You break his bread at noon and fling it toward frozen ducks on the mill pond, and you awaken from what you've been. You want to be bread broken. How do you feel you, that this poem addresses, how do you feel about being told what you want? You want to be bread broken. Are you content to keep a whole loaf to yourself? Or does it become a weight of loneliness or an exposure of loneliness? Who would you share the loaf with anyway? I find it both beautiful and heartbreaking. This poem leads us in a state of longing that the one thing that matters, I would venture to name it, to share 
the one thing that matters to share is fulfilled, at least partly, by sharing the loaf with ducks. And even this is enough to cause an awakening. It's not enough to want to be bred. You actually want to be bread broken, which is to say, shared. The etymological roots of the word companion are helpful here. Companion derives from Middle English and Anglo-French, from late Latin compagno. The com in companion means with, and the second part comes from panis, the Latin word for bread, with bread. And in that root, one sees the basis on which the notion of companionship originally hinged. A companion is someone you share bread with. Perhaps the awakening in this poem is both an awakening of the good desire for companionship, to share bread with another, Perhaps it is also an awakening of the desire to not merely look good, like a good-looking loaf, but and not not to just uh, look good, but to go unchosen, untouched, ungiven. Perhaps this expresses a realization that the one thing that matters is to offer oneself in a deep and complete and nourishing sense to a hungry world. You want to be bread broken. Do you want to be bread broken? I think this is a question worth asking and a question worth answering. And it most certainly was a question that Jesus reckoned with and answered yes to. All right, I want to take us on sort of a a quick whirlwind survey of the motif of uh, the meal in Scripture. And um, this is largely informed by uh, this little book called A Holy Meal by Gordon Smith. Indeed, the meal is a central motif in the Bible, particularly in connection with God's salvation. And this is fitting because it was in eating that the first human parents disobeyed God. The first human parents were invited to eat of the Garden of Eden with the proviso that their eating was to be an expression of thankfulness, obedience, and dependence on God. And alas, it was in their eating that they chose to disobey. Eating plays a crucial role in the inauguration of the Old Testament covenant. Abraham and Sarah make a meal for the Lord, who appeared as three men, by the oaks of Mamre in Genesis 18. And they receive 
uh, to Sarah is the laughable promise that she will have a son in her old age. After the Hebrew people were delivered from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, um, which brings to mind that daily provision of manna in the wilderness, we read in Exodus 24 of the confirmation of the covenant. I'm not putting it up here in full. I find it overwhelming on the screen to see all this. So just listen. Um, I, I want you to hear this um, because of the presence of blood as well, as you think toward Jesus's own identification with the cup as well. Moses, this is from Exodus 24. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron Nabad and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. It's gory, right? (laughs) Here there is feasting to seal this covenant. In describing the sacrificial system, the book of Leviticus makes regular references to the act of eating in connection with the sacrifices. The peace offering in particular included eating part of the offering while it was being presented to God. The wisdom literature of the Old Testament includes intriguing references to eating and drinking, including, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed, lay aside immaturity, and live and walk in the way of insight. This is the call of wisdom to whoever is simple, 
to him who lacks sense, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. In the prophet Isaiah, we find this call. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast Sure love for David. In the New Testament, we read of Jesus eating often with his followers, with his disciples, with both outcasts and religious elite. Sometimes he's the one hosting and serving the meal. Think of the miraculous feeding of 5,000 and the Last Supper. But more often, he's the one who is a guest at the meal. Jesus continued eating with his disciples after his resurrection, and in the road to Emmaus account, it is specifically in the breaking of bread that Jesus was recognized. The early church ate together And it was and remains a defining practice of the Christian church to regularly affirm the new covenant in Christ's blood and the celebration of um, the presence of the risen Christ in the communion meal. In light of all of this eating, in light of all of this table-centeredness, It should come as no surprise, and yet should, I think, still strike us as amazing and wonderful that salvation is symbolized in the act of eating and drinking. Gordon Smith notes, In the event of a meal, we together look back to the failure of our human parents, And we look forward to an eating and drinking that will be part of the kingdom that is yet to come. We also eat very intentionally as an act of obedience. Do this in remembrance of me. By this act, we identify with what matters most to us. To live in grateful obedience to God who is the source of life. (laughs) So let's look a little closer at one specific passage in which Jesus identifies himself as bread. This is found in John chapter 6, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. 
At the beginning of John 6, Jesus desires to feed a large crowd. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus goes on to miraculously feed thousands of people from a boy's small lunch of five barley loaves and two fish with leftovers. The next day when the crowd seeks him out again, Jesus states, Truly, truly I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And this sparks a long and escalating discussion in which Jesus states, I am the bread of life. He says this twice. And elaborates, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. This in contrast to the manna that was provided to the ancestors in the wilderness. And Jesus finally pushes this metaphor to its breaking point. Or pushes his conversation partners to their breaking point. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And maybe, like many of the followers, you want to say, this is a hard saying, Jesus. Who can listen to it? And indeed, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus from that point on. While there's much more that could be said about this particular passage, and I encourage you to give it a fresh, close read in the coming days, I'll simply note here that this I am statement is the first of seven I am statements in John's Gospel. The seventh being, I am the true vine. Thomas, I think you're just blocking the... Um, screen a little. It's okay, your arm is just going into the light, and so it's blocking the PowerPoint. Don't worry. So this I am statement is the first of seven of John's I am statements that Jesus says. And the seventh is, I am the true vine. Together, I am the bread of life, And I am the true vine, point directly to the Lord's table, the bread and wine with which Jesus identifies himself in the Last Supper. Turning to that language in particular where Jesus says, this bread is my body. 
All three of the synop, well, all of the synoptic gospel, or all of the gospels account for this Last Supper, but it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that we um, find Jesus in the final meal with his friends, um, and we find the language that has carried forward into the celebration of the communion meal. The Lord's Supper is a profound, symbolic, Action and symbolic actions. Oops, sorry. Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> um, symbolic actions, religious and otherwise, make sense only if we understand what's happening, what the activity represents, and what it communicates. It communicates the gospel, the saving work of God in two sentences. And uh, commentator Frederick Dale Bruner notes, Jesus' supper is also Jesus' personal doctrine of the atonement. Here we have Jesus' most careful, verbal, and visual definition of what his death means. Here's Matthew's account. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. I'm happy to come back if you want to talk more about um, the communion meal or the Last Supper. But I want to move to a final, the final section of um, this lecture tonight, which is uh, the most personal, I guess. Um, I said in the the mise en place, one of the things I bring to this topic is 15 years of making bread. And so I really want to offer you two things here. One, um, some reflections on making bread for our family at meeting, making bread for the communion table, which um, I've done recently for our church. And then I want to reflect on the particular steps of the bread-making process that I think, here it is again, give rise to hard but important questions for the soul. So first, making bread for our family and for communion. Um, I've made bread for our family uh, pretty much for the entirety of uh, my children's lives. There have been seasons where I've paused, but uh, pretty much mom's sourdough bread is a staple in our kitchen. Um, It makes great toast. It makes the best grilled cheese sandwiches. It's a wonderful accompaniment to soup. Uh, it's a really good platform for just bits and pieces of all sorts of things. And um, 
the ends that are getting a little stale make really good croutons. And lately, Lily, who's seven, has become particularly effusive about mom's bread, which is really nice to hear because a lot of the labors of parenting go unacknowledged. So I'm enjoying that. (laughs) But even more, I've enjoyed this. In the last month, I've been able to make bread for our church's communion services. And in this way, my kids have encountered a very familiar sight and feel and taste with new ideas and new words, ritual words put to them, which back to the work of imagination and the way that metaphor runs in two directions, even as they start to learn how Jesus is like bread, they're invited to consider how mom's bread is like Jesus. Consider for a moment why Jesus instituted a holy meal. We've noted the centrality of meals throughout scripture. And can you think of anything more basic and sustaining to human life than eating and drinking? Resting and breathing would be contenders, I think. And I think these are... uh, provided for, accounted for, in the gift of Sabbath. Frederick Dale Bruner again notes, God gives rites, these rituals, in order to communicate realities. And the first reality that I want my kids to internalize and that I need to keep teaching myself is that God is good. When Lily has taken communion these last couple times, I've seen her eagerness to get to the table because she knows there's goodness there. As she's torn off a piece of bread, I've whispered in her ear, Lily, this is Jesus' body, broken for you. He loves to give good food to his children. (coughs) Jesus is like good bread. And I would say good bread is like Jesus. All truth is God's truth. All goodness is God's goodness. All beauty is God's beauty. What truth, what goodness, what beauty is in your life that you have maybe not yet received as gifts from God that speak directly of God's character? All right, the second personal um, reflection here. The process of bread making. Um, 
the workers know I've been thinking a lot since um, going to this Vermont conference on Christianity and the, art, and the arts of craft care as soul care. Um, any art or craft that we discipline ourselves to, I think, is also a way that we we attend to the state of our own souls. Letting materials, in this case, flour and water, and a little bit of salt, yeast, letting materials and the process of making reveal and renovate your soul. Um, allowing that time to be a time where you keep company with Jesus. I like this phrase a lot. Adele Calhoun uses it in her Spiritual Disciplines Handbook. I think in in regard to every single discipline, every single practice, what what has what has this accomplished? Have you kept company with Jesus in this? Um, and letting that process and that craft or art put questions to us. So here we return to that word loafing. Not just as a verb, but as a noun. To become loaf-like. I want to look quite literally at these steps in making a loaf. And through paying attention to what's going on in some particular steps, I want to ask some questions of our souls. And by soul, I mean our whole person. And these might be questions that you want to tuck away and um, ponder prayerfully. All right. Mise en place, which we began with. The preliminary step that tells us a hard truth. You can only begin where you are. You can only begin where you are. And the fact is, we can expend a whole lot of energy avoiding the state we're actually in. To take an honest, even a brutally honest, appraisal of the state of our soul will mean facing lacks, will mean facing the variety of substitutions that we might be using in place of the real thing. And I'm here to tell you that when it comes to baking and when it comes to spiritual health, not all substitutions work. So we might ask, have I been trying to get results in my life from ingredients that just can't do the job? All right, next steps. We mix water and flour and a starter, which is um, wild yeast feeding on wet flour. Yeast from the air that has found a hospitable environment and is then munching away on the sugars in the grains. That is what a starter is. So, 
I think um, a starter, the presence of wild yeast, invites us to ask the question, what's already there? What's already in my life? But perhaps has lacked a hospitable environment to flourish. What have I overlooked, maybe? What have I not cultivated a space for? It just needs the right conditions to flourish. Then there's these other processes, which I'm not, I'm not going to go into in detail, but autolize is this little step of resting, letting the uh, flower absorb as much water as it possibly can, before adding the salt, which slows down the absorption and the rising um, of the dough. And then we knead it. And then once we have a good, well-kneaded mass of dough, it must ferment. And the fermentation is the time that it takes for the invisible presence to do its work. Here we have to trust the slow work of yeast, or I would say we have to trust in our own lives the slow work of the Holy Spirit. This makes me think of Paul's contrasting the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And even um, the difference in the, the works of versus the fruit of this mechanistic, even um, hurried state that the flesh puts us in, contrasted with an organic, slower movement of the spirit. So fermentation is the time that it takes for the invisible presence to do its work. How do we know that it's working? Well, with bread, the dough slowly fills with air. The breath of life is in it, we could say. And so I think we could ask this. Am I trusting the slow, organic work of the Holy Spirit and being filled with breath? Or am I being goaded by the flesh? Am I literally out of breath in my life? All right. Stretching and folding the dough. Um, With some sourdough recipes um, and others too, especially with very wet doughs, the the structure and the integrity of of the dough and then the final form... uh, benefits greatly from periodic uh, dumping the dough out onto a lightly floured counter and stretching it in two directions and folding it over on itself and then stretching it again and folding it onto itself. The stretching and the letter folding of the dough strengthen the gluten strands. It interlocks amino acids and it creates this gluten net. More folds are needed for wetter doughs. 
or doughs uh, with low-gluten flours like spelt or rye. Stretching strengthens the structural integrity of the dough. And so I think we could ask, am I resisting a needed stretching? How would I know? Maybe I lack in strength and structural integrity. Maybe I need to be stretched and given more time for that strength and integrity to grow. After the fermentation, we divide the dough and we pre-shape the loaves. This is a temporary form that prepares for the final form. And there's something in this, at this point, we call a bench rest, where it just sits on the counter covered with plastic. Um, I hear in this some applications um, for vocational discernment. Sometimes we're in a pre-shaped state. I haven't reached a final form, but the shape that we're in now is actually making space in us and making us ready to take on a new shape that we will move into. So we might ask, how might the season that I'm in be requiring some extra intentional rest? That bench rest allows um, the bread to be ready to be shaped fully. There's a, a baker that some of us have met um, who lived here for a while named Kendall Vanderslice. Can you believe that? <laughs> I know. And uh, she has tons of wonderful resources on bread and um, a website called Edible Theology. I would definitely recommend looking her up if you're interested in theology of food. Um, she's doing some really cool things. Um, and she wrote some funny things about, um, about <laughs> this shaping process of loaves that I wanted to share with you. <clears throat> she says, I like to tell people that gluten is like a toddler. It will happily go where you want it to go, as long as you let it think it's its own idea. Also, it gets tired really quickly. If you try to keep working it, once it's hit the point of exhaustion, it will completely break down and refuse to do what you want it to do. But if you let it nap often, everything will be just fine. The best bread shaping occurs in stages. Each step slowly increases the tension of the gluten, giving it the strength to hold its shape. It also slowly pushes the gluten into the final shape you want to achieve. As you slowly ease it into the right direction, it will follow along thinking the final shape was its own idea. 
So I would add to the toddler analogy, toddlers are also great deniers of their need for a nap. They fight it, and yet they're in this dynamic time of growth that requires more rest than they often want to give it. And I think there's um, a similarity in athletics. If you've done any athletic training, you know that um, rest is a critical part of the training regimen to be able to perform optimally. So how might the season I'm in being be requiring some intentional rest? All right, and then a final shape is made, and the final fermentation happens, another rise. And then there's this little thing called scoring the loaf, which is a cut, an intentional cut in the bread. And here, again, I want to listen together to Kendall's uh, reflections on the final step of scoring the bread and baking it. After your bread finishes its final rise, it heads into the oven to bake. The yeasts continue to feast on the sugar present, but as the bread heads toward the oven, they realize their time is about up. They feel the heat pressing in on them. All around the water that has not been absorbed into the starch begins to turn into steam. In the face of impending death, the yeasts could lock in and hold on to one another. They could try and prevent moving on, but if they did, the loaf they leave behind would be dense and sticky. It would be awkwardly shapen. Unwilling to use the building pressure for good, the dough would explode in its weakest places. But when the baker carefully scores the top of the dough, the yeasts and the steam work together to give the loaf one final push. They take the coming death and use it to say, we have to go. We know you're about to kill us but we're going to leave behind a story of our love and our beauty anyway. This oven spring gives bread its open crumb and robust shape. You see the intentional scoring that happened here to direct that release of steam. So... We've been, we've been loafed, been made into a loaf of bread, taken out of the oven, the crust crackles. It's finished, right? No, this is not the final stage in the life of a loaf of bread. One of Lily's lovely compliments of my bread recently was, Mom, your bread is so good it should be in a museum. (laughs) And I said, nay, nay, Lily, that's exactly what it should not be. It should not be in a museum. 
can't be under glass. Of course not. No matter how beautiful a loaf is, it is not complete until it has been broken, shared, eaten. What a tragedy to watch a gorgeous, wholesome loaf mold under plastic. You break his bread at noon and fling it toward frozen ducks on the mill pond. And you awaken from what you've been. You want to be bread broken. And that's where I'm going to leave off and invite you to sneak out and get a piece of bread. Um, or stick around and have a conversation about things that stirred in you or that came to mind, questions you have. I'm happy to chat about any of this. And I think what we might try, we've never done this before, but this is for the benefit of those who listen online to these lectures. I'm going to invite Esther to come up and just be a second a second brain up here, because mine is spent at this point, or close to spent. Um, and as you raise questions or comments, she'll just repeat them for the recording so that I don't forget to do that, because I always forget to do that. Thank you for trying that. Yes, Chris. Um, do you think that bread was a necessary analogy or representation of Jesus to use, or do you think he could have used another food? Was bread a necessary analogy for Jesus to use, or could he have used a different food? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Is there a different food you have in mind? Just any? Is that like? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think, um, and I'd love to actually do further reading in this, but um, I think. Bread in you know many different forms, depending on whatever the local grains available have been, have always been like a staple in humans' diets. And so, I think one of the reasons bread is so suitable is it's so basic. Um, yeah, and of course, in the Last Supper. It was an unleavened bread. It was the Passover meal. Um, so there were very specific uh, symbols that he was taking up and inhabiting and transforming, I would say, um, in that as well. So I guess in that regard, maybe no. Maybe it couldn't have been anything but unleavened bread. Do others have thoughts on that? Why bread? Couldn't it have been something else? What else could it have been? Is there a tie-in between bread and manna from the Old Testament? Yeah, and I think the unleavened bread from the Passover meal, when uh, God delivered the Hebrew people and they had to flee Egypt before their bread could arrive, they had unleavened bread. And so um, part of the, the memory and cultivating the memory of that as a people involved 
having unleavened bread to remember that God delivered them from slavery. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's also the most basic universal staple. So it's, it's a, an idea that's about as globally accessible as any food-based idea could be. Yeah, I think so. Universally accessible, like water, <laughs> bread and water. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I've always thought primarily about the when Jesus said, "My body's broken," or "Bread's broken," like my body um, of His body on the cross, you know, actually being broken. But this is neat to hear the idea of it being shared. Like, Mm-hmm. that's part of the broken do you think he met both or do you think he primarily met the, the shared like is that how they would have understood mm-hmm. it, they heard mm-hmm. it? Mm-hmm. yeah the question is the idea of bread broken to be shared that's one aspect we also think of Jesus' body being broken on the cross physically is one of those more meant by Jesus than other, the mm-hmm. other thank you for that question I think what Jesus shares is his broken body. Mm-hmm. And so it is it is both. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think a comment just going off of that mm-hmm. that I have is, is that's one of the great work that a metaphor does is it can carry a lot of meanings. Mm-hmm. Um, when in my research, I, I learned that metaphor comes from the Greek word for moving van. It's like the same roots. It's like everything you can put into a moving van and it moves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah Ben. Um, just um, an unformed, fairly unformed question here about. Um, the, the use of leaven negatively, as in, in Jesus' words. I think, we're, Esther, do you talk about this in your lecture? Or someone talked about it. At church. Never mind me that our church. <laughs> I don't remember. It all bleeds together. Um, yeah, but the, the, uh, the Pharisees, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees being, being referred to as leaven that's sort of corrupted a batch and is rising. And, and so it's, it's that same... Um, sort of process that that is described so beautifully here and it's such a good thing right but but mm-hmm. then used as a negative thing as, a, as something that can corrupt uh, and contaminate the whole batch right? mm-hmm. um, is that do you think is that metaphor used um, because it makes contact with sort of like the, the, the Jewish notion of of um, purity and impurity and the command to to have unleavened bread in the Exodus and, this, and I'm just wondering where that where, the use of that metaphor I think is, is so seems so contrary to to um, well it seems contrary to, to good bread right? yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, yeah we're like Crackers. You're We're right. talking about crackers. Crackers. Then. Crackers. Is a little bit, yeah. I, I, I guess. Just what do you make of that metaphor? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Ben asked, "What does Sarah make of the use of the metaphor of leaven in Scripture as something that's negative, something that corrupts the whole batch?" Hmm. Well, 
you put your finger on something that I wanted to do some more reading into and didn't have time to. So I'm curious about this as well. Um, I, I mean, I, I certainly don't think Jesus is saying yeast is bad, you know. Um, but I do think um, once it's once it's there, like there's no way to take it out of of a of dough, um, like salt. You can't you can't get it out once it's in. Um, and so, yeah, that's where my mind goes with that. Like if he's he's warning against that, um, the the this is a, a metaphorical link, like. The, the influence of the Pharisees is like mm-hmm. yeast, you know, <laughs> like, um, and so I think it's asking us to think about that influence. Just, just because of how pervasive yeast is in, in something, like yeah. it's, it's not that mm-hmm. he's assuming a negative connotation in the minds mm-hmm. of his listeners. Mm-hmm. Right, yeast. right. Yeah, but I mean, that was a question I had too because you mentioned you know is it is it something to do with purity laws and there would have been like well this is the right bread to eat and this is mm-hmm. the wrong bread to eat and I'm like i i would guess there's both unleavened and leavened bread options in the market you know but i don't actually know historically lenny it seems like there was a practical part of the passover um bread being unleavened because of time right um it takes time, mm-hmm. you know. So it's it's kind of a, a neutral thing mm-hmm. that can work for good or for evil, mm-hmm. um, not in itself mm-hmm. A, mm-hmm. a good or an evil. Yeah, mm-hmm. and maybe others can correct me if I'm not remembering this correctly. But uh, the unleavened bread was because of the they had to flee yeah. flee yeah. Egypt, yeah. and yeah. so there wasn't time for it to exactly. rise. So it's not that like. The unleavened bread is, yeah, is preferable in and of itself, but it's because, right, this, this is what we had leaving, and so this is what carries the memory of that deliverance from, yeah, 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 Rachel. And Jesus uses the, the metaphor of leaven in a positive way, too, and there's, there's a parable where he talks about, like, the kingdom of heaven is like a woman hiding a measure of leaven in this flower, and then you know there's all this time until it's all leavened. Right. It's a mm-hmm. good thing in that mm-hmm. case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know that there's in the kind of I think it's in the sacrificial system. There's a bread of the presence. Mm-hmm. Can do you think there's some connection or metaphor in that as well? Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what the bread of the presence was meant for as far as part of sacrifice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, does anybody know details about Do you know details about Go, oh, so go ahead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> what about the bread of the presence in the Old Testament? Like in the tabernacle and in the temple, right? There was a table that was for mm-hmm. these loaves of bread to be put out every day. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to do more reading into that as well. Um, I do think, well, this is shooting from the hip, <laughs> but um, I'm sure there's, yes, a link to be made with the bread of the presence, representing God's presence with his people, and then Jesus identifying himself as God made flesh now with bread 
that is also meant to signify his presence to his people. And, you know, in the communion meal, um, there's always a prayer for the presence of the Spirit to be there too. And so I think um, what, yeah, Jesus is present in his Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, uh, amongst his people. Um, But yeah, do others, does anybody else know more about the bread of the presence? It was part of the sacrifice, though, right? I'm guessing. I would imagine, yeah. Some sacrifices had had parts where you brought, like, a wheat bread part and Mm -hmm. your animal part. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, the bread of the presence was, like, put out every... It's, like, there all the time. There all the time, yeah. And the priests would eat it, too. It didn't just, like, Mm -hmm. go moldy or whatever and just put out. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yeah, Chris. Um, kind of to bounce off of Renee's question of whether the use of Jesus talking about himself as the broken bread is reference to him on the cross or not. How do you think that also plays in later in certain passages of scripture that talk about Jesus specifically, none of his bones being broken? Would you say, like, sure, his bones weren't broken, but his body was, like, metaphorically broken in death? Or would you just mm-hmm. say mm-hmm. that because of that, you know, statement of Jesus not being literally broken that way, then this can't be about that. Mm-hmm. So that is a connection to the Passover lamb. That's, so that's not about bread. They couldn't break any of the Passover lamb's bones to get the marrow out, and that's more of a haste theme. So Jesus' mm-hmm. bones aren't broken to refer back to that rather than to the bread. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But broken and like yeah. he's yeah. he's killed mm-hmm. 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 any other thoughts or questions more i i didn't i didn't uh yeah well because basically earth is like a fire right we have trials and things that shape us but after we get taken out of the oven um if we do well right we're good bread then we'll be kept and enjoyed by our creator but if we don't stand the trials well then we will end up like burned bread Run, run with the metaphor. I know so far. I have been thinking about. Well, this is this is a not a fully formed thought, but, um, yeah, thinking about that, the metaphor of, um, 
transformation versus transfiguration. <laughs> Thinking like, okay, we see um, ingredients transformed. Um, but yeah, I do wonder what uh, the trans the transfiguration of um, of bread will be in the reunion of heaven and earth. Um, <laughs> Dance party! I've been meditating with a friend of mine for, in seminary said the word used for good in Genesis is life giving. Hmm. And so when you talk about good bread, I think bread is life giving. Mm-hmm. And so what does that mean to partake of God's life giving presence? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I. I am really hopeful. I mean, I think one of hopeful that uh, churches will be able to um, return to if they were already sharing a common loaf, <laughs> since everybody had to go to the little packets during COVID. Um, but I'm I'm a big proponent for like the communion meal should should be as close, you know, should as fully exemplify life-giving, nourishing, desirable bread. Um, I understand why we still do unleavened wafers, yeah, but I don't know. I don't think, I don't think we're bound to that <laughs> anymore. There's a new covenant in Christ's blood, and uh, we can have, like, the best loaf in town. Yeah, Ben. So is there is there a continuation of the metaphor uh, if we think about bad bread? Like we've been talking about good bread, Wonder the, Bread. This whole time we've been talking about good bread, but there's bread and then there's bread, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, even just mm. I was thinking, I was fascinated by your questions, the questions that you can ask yourself that are prompted by the baking process, mm-hmm. and how it's a way, you know, the the, the real pretty searching self-reflection there um, but you know am I am I working with ingredients that just can't do the job you know am I trying to make a beautiful loaf of whole whole grain sourdough and all I have is refined white flour you know whatever mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. um, yeah yeah I, I yeah I guess I'd, I'd like to hear more thoughts on what that can look like in our lives. Um, I, have a, I, have, I think each one of these, I mean, I, I understand these questions are, are like prompts to like mm-hmm. what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what, what is the, uh, what's an example, an example of not having the right ingredients to do the job in your life? <laughs> For anybody, I don't know, yeah. Ben's asking what what does it look like to flush out some of these questions that, that Sarah asked in the in the steps of the bread making process? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I invite anyone to share on that front because I think yeah they are fairly weighty questions um, that merit some reflection. Um, I'll just 
add on the bread front? The, is, good, is there bad bread here? Um, I was thinking about, um, you know, the living in a gluten-scared time. Um, because, you know, like, there's, there's some legitimacy to that. Yeah. Because of our, both our farming and our baking practices are yielding a product that is not as digestible mm-hmm. as bread that is made from good ingredients and that undergoes a slow rise um, because the slow rise process of sourdough baking breaks down the gluten and actually does a ton of digestion in the process before it even goes into your mouth and hits your stomach. And so... Um, yeah, I do think, again, that's indicative of haste and mass production. Mm-hmm. And so that, I guess that would be one angle for to add into that process of reflection. Like, And what am I just doing a rush job on yeah. that means I'm not going to, I'm not going to get the kind of results yeah. that can only be gotten with patience. Mm-hmm. Trusting the invisible work of the spirit. Yeah, yeah. That's really helpful. Yeah. Yes, Thomas. Did you say the um, the sourdough aids in breaking down the bread? Yes, yes. It yeah. It helps. It basically yeah does some digestive work for you before you eat it. So people who are sensitive to gluten can often eat sourdough breads. They can't eat other bread. Right, like Wonder Bread, or bread that's made with conventional yeast, which often has more of a dough-like batter, and it's baked in forms. And sourdough, they, they, they can eat it when they might not be able to eat the other bread. Mm-hmm, correct. That, that's because of why again? Because the slow fermentation process uh, in sourdough baking means that um, the gluten strands, which has to do with the proteins of the grain, are are broken down in the rise process of the the, the bread. Broken down. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there any other kind of food that uses yeast in its beer? Yes. Yes. Beer. Which is liquid bread. It 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 surface liquid bread. Uh-huh. Yeah, I can't think of anything else. Marmite. Marmite. Sugar, herbs, and flour, and sprinkles. 
<laughs> rock, rock bread, <laughs> rock cake. I can do an awful lot of my own power mm-hmm. without the breath of God. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I'll, I'll make a mess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well said. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There are, I mean, other, um, like kombucha, and that involves yeast, a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast um, is the, the mother in, in the tea. Um, so, yeah, anything that is working with fermentation involves yeast and bacteria. And Would wine as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kimchi that, and sauerkraut, a yeah. lot of fermented things with cabbage, because mm-hmm. cabbage is hard to break down, but mm-hmm. those, those are fermented. Those are uh-huh. mm-hmm. Yeah, and the yeast, like, is naturally, like, it is on the skins of the grapes, so it's there in wine already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Sarah.